Where? Okay, welcome to the Pod Me Us United States Elections Freedom Eagle and God We Trust Extravaganza Jubilee. Uh, still working on the name for the episode. Uh, also, welcome to Pod Me Us, documenting the modern crisis of neoliberal capitalism from a leftist perspective as America transitions towards a primarily podcast based economy. Yeah, I think this podcast thing is going to be big. You know, I think we're really ahead of the curve on this one. Yeah, everyone's going to be listening to these things. It's um, no one even knows what a pod is even more. Like, I guess they were named after the iPod originally. Have you ever thought about that? That's yeah, even the even the thing the word comes from is already gone by the wayside, you know, the podcasts live on. Um, Okay, yes, this is our United States election special where we talk about the upcoming bourgeois elections on Tuesday, analyzing chances of Joe Biden and the other candidates. We're just basically uh, ripping off our analysis wholesale from 538. Not wholesale, because Nate Silver is like kind of a dork, but he decided to start this website where he predicts elections and sometimes gets things right. Um, Perhaps proven to be a little too cocky in 2016. Indeed. In fairness, he wasn't alone. That's true. 2016 was a, uh, well, I I think it's indicative that these things can still throw a curveball, especially when you have such a unique candidate like Donald Trump. But um, yes, where are we starting? We're starting with Ohio. Yeah. uh, His swing state analysis has Ohio as a toss up, which according to his analysis and the sort of 40,000 simulations that they've done mm. uh, is pretty much split 50-50 in, the, in those predictions in going through every scenario. I guess, I guess I'm assuming the number of predictions and everything is to sort of go through every permutation of margin of error and factor the different range of factors that polling can capture. What do you think? Do you think that's the the case? Are you comfortable with that 50-50 split for Ohio? Uh, Yeah, I think that's probably just about right. I mean, of course, Ohio greatly disappointed us back in 2004, I think. I don't know. I think there was a lot that was said at the time um, about some shenanigans that went down in Ohio that year, too. That was when Bush was reelected. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Christopher Hitchens has uh, an article on Vanity Fair from back then that you can still find online Hmm. where he went through uh, all the really suspicious stuff that happened, like down ballot candidates getting votes. And yet the presidential candidates on their ballot, you know, remains blank. Like you have like uh, judges on the Democrat side who get 6000 more votes than John Kerry, Hmm. uh, things like that. And um, yeah, I mean, that was something that thing is that's what happened in 2016. And in our last podcast, I mentioned that Michael Moore said that and attributed it to, uh, you know, a, basically a protest vote because the, the numbers were just so insane. It was like 80,000 people did that. And the thing is, Hillary Clinton was this unlikable candidate to, to, to this extent that that seemed very plausible. In 2004, though, much less so, much less so. And mm. uh, also there's a, a really... Uh, bone chilling documentary from around that time i think the documentary came out in 2004 if not the talking year about uh, hacking democracy hacking, 
yes, hacking democracy is an absolutely you know terrifying uh, documentary. And and in in the movie, there was a one of the consultants she hires this like computer scientist expert of some kind. You know, she hires a couple of guys to look at this stuff, and one of them uh, looks at the way these machines work, and he said, you know, if you told me that you thought if, if you made this if you were the person who made this machine and told me that you thought it was safe i would think you're crazy stupid or lying mm-hmm. um that was that, that those were his words and um sounds like yeah, uh, I mean, I, an I apt think... description of all those knuckleheads up in washington am i right oh yeah, well, um all right we want to move on to georgia yeah georgia uh they have down as a uh Biden slightly favored, 58 over 42 in predictions against Donald Trump. Wow. Forecast, uh, according to 538, looked good until mid-October. And then the race got tighter to the point where Biden has just recently sort of surpassed him. And once again, this is not, I have to specify that this is not, I'm talking about 58 over 42 in sort of over 100 predictions, right? Mm-hmm. This is not... 58% in polling to 42% in polling. Right. It's sort of taking the polling altogether and a couple of other factors and running 40,000 simulations and then averaging that out to over 100. So 58 over 42 uh, uh, my, for Biden. My prediction, uh, I think the vote will be sufficiently rigged in that state. There will be enough voter suppression that Trump will win. But I think the difference between uh, you know what is potentially predicted and the actual outcome should uh, show just how much we should be concerned about voter suppression, particularly in the South. But what's your take on Georgia? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up this stuff because um, I, I'm inclined to agree on all of these predictions that basically all of them are you know, entirely within the realm of possibility. We can go down the list and give the numbers out to people, but you know, they might as well just look at it at 538. I'm just going to play a pessimist on every one of these. and uh... Yeah, yeah. I know you might as well because 538's predictions are based on, quote, demographics and voting patterns. So it begs the question, well, what factors get lost in that analysis? Uh, what this suffers from is stuff that just, that Nate Silver and just polling in general can't help. You know, they're just factors that, uh, you know, that fit through the net of polling and just can't necessarily be accounted for by it. Any any model at this point should be factoring several things. It should be factoring in voter suppression. Um, yes. It's possible, you know, Nate Silver could be missing a few things. He's probably got, if we're being honest, like a little bit of brain damage from all the swirlies he got as a kid. But um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, North Carolina. So it's, I don't know what my prediction is on Florida. It's, um, but uh, I would expect it to probably disappoint me. Uh, North Carolina. I'm in North Carolina currently. I can speak uh, about North Carolina a little bit. I think Biden's going to win this one. Um, I don't know what your take is on North Carolina, but it's, um, you know, it went for the Democrats in, uh, I guess it was 2008 for Obama. Uh, it hasn't gone for Democrats since, but it has continued to become bluer. Uh, they're electing several Democrats at the state level. And North Carolina has been really good to their credit about making it easy for people to vote, uh, making early voting pretty easy. And they've had a pretty good system in place. Uh, you know, the absentee ballots do worry me a little bit just because it's 
So a lot of people voting absentee for the first time and they don't always necessarily know how to do it. And there have been reports that a decent amount of those might have been rejected. Although there is a process in North Carolina to cure the ballots, they call it, uh, they will send it back and allow them to correct it. But uh, all things considered, I think uh, I think Biden's going to pull out North Carolina. What do you think? Um, you're saying that the, the the measures they've taken in terms of early voting and stuff are, are good. I'm willing to take your word for it on that. So I'll join you in agreeing with 538 on North Carolina. It's hard to know for sure. You know, more voters could get pepper sprayed. There could be marauding caravans of Trumpers and pickup trucks uh, driving people off the road on Election Day. It's hard to say, but I think Biden will pull it out. Uh, Next up, Iowa. Um, Iowa's, uh, I don't know, seems like a boring state. Let's skip it. Uh, Texas. 538 says that Trump is uh, uh, slightly favored to win. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the case. I don't, you know, it's trending bluer, but I don't think it's going to quite get there this time. Uh, plus, I'm sure there will be no. plenty of voter suppression as there is in other southern states. Yeah, there were, well, they did recently just uh, one thing that's kind of encouraging is that they free they recently uh, you know, I have an article here from the Texas Tribune that says Texas Supreme Court rejects Republican led effort to throw out nearly one hundred and twenty seven thousand Harris County votes. Uh, those votes were at drive in voting uh, and, you know, they were. You know, it's the sort of thing where they they, they just sort of find whatever, uh, you know, um, whatever reason to challenge this stuff. Right. Oh, you can't you can't drive into a polling place. That's bullshit. That's not legal. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. You should be able to drive into anything in America. It's like you drive through your McDonald's and you get your hamburger and then you hey, drive in church. You ever seen those things? I haven't. Drive in churches? I'm yeah, I'm sure that exists. OK, Texas, Trump, Arizona, Texas, Trump. Um. Yeah, Arizona, I guess it's looking pretty decent for Biden in the polling. Uh, also a very racist state, but a very Latino state. Um, what do you think about Arizona? Uh, I think that it would be very interesting and surprising for Biden to take it. This was the uh, last I, state um, that... Uh, officially recognized MLK Day as a holiday. Arizona, yeah, Arizona is also on this list, I'm pretty sure, of, uh, of uh, Voting Rights Act uh, states mm. that, I mean, I haven't followed very specifically since that Supreme Court decision, but the gist of it was that generally all the states that were let off the hook after that just went all, you know, freaking risky business and went nuts uh, without the supervision. And I, yeah, so I, I worry that uh, that Arizona is one of those and um, and that, yeah, this might be a factor that, again, slips through the um, slips through the, the net cast by 538. But I would love to be proven wrong because Arizona going blue would be a nice big middle finger to all the really hardcore Republicans there. That's the thing, like Arizona Republic, it's the land of Joe Arpaio, you know, and like the most sort of mm. uh, uh, draconian, sadistic brand almost of uh, Republicanism. Forget, you know, particularly racist or particularly free market and stuff like, the, the, you know, that, that place just likes to turn the screws in a particularly sadistic way to people it's, and uh, uh, i would love to see that it's a very rebuke it's a very racist state um 
it's a fairly Latino state, not as much, I don't think, as neighboring uh, New Mexico. But yeah, I think we should be on a, a lookout for this trend. Uh, Trump is targeting Latinos. Um, he's making a cultural appeal to uh, particularly uh, male Latinos. And uh, it's, uh, you know, whether the Latino vote is going to stay uh, overwhelmingly Democratic. I mean, it's George Bush did a pretty good job with Latino voters. So it's not necessarily always going to be as Democratic as it has historically been. Um, it remains to be seen, but I'll go with the polling and say that uh, maybe Arizona will be Biden. Um, but yeah, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, I think Biden will win that one um, as yeah. Democrats. Uh, Nate, Nate, Nate Silver says as much and uh, with or without his confirmation, I, I, I was leaning that way. On it's, it. it's been good to see that the uh, Rust Belt seems to be going blue again this time around. That was the big danger was that 2016 was going to be this real realigning election and then the Rust Belt was going to be solidly Republican from here on out. Um, doesn't seem to be the case, which is good news. Um, okay, Nevada, Nevada, however you pronounce that state. Um, yeah, it looks like uh, Biden is doing pretty well in the polls. Um, I think there's a fairly progressive Latino population there. Also a, um, a Latino population that was very hard hit by the Great Recession and that I think has been uh, Democratic leaning ever since. So yeah, looks like uh, Nevada, uh, Biden. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that production, sure. That's another one that, um, that yeah, I think is uh, less plagued by these wild card factors that we've been mentioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there will necessarily be a ton of uh, voter repression there, at least no more than, you know, the norm in any given state in this country. So, um, but... Um, yeah, maybe this is a good time to kind of cover our asses here in terms of our predictions. I, you know, have always felt and still feel that there is a decent chance Trump could win this election outright. I think, you know, we've talked about before, Biden hasn't run the best campaign. He hasn't run an issue focused campaign much in the same way that Hillary did in 2016. He hasn't been hitting on these economic issues that matter to people. And Trump has, you know, Democrats have been talking about how Trump's going to steal the election. I was going to try to steal the election, which is a worthy thing to talk about. But, um, you know, it's not the issue oriented campaign that hits home for people. Um, and in the meantime, while we've been talking about all this again, Trump has been trying to hit a, a bit of an economic message on the stump. It's possible that that could, um, you know, prove to have appealed to people. There's also apparently been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of new, newly registered voters for Republicans over the past few months. Uh, I've been reading uh, that. Um, I mean, uh, there, there's a lot of, um, yeah, it, it, you know, the, the, the playing field is, is, is constantly being shaken up. We are not in a period of, uh, I mean, nothing is ever in a period of perfect stasis, but uh, I think last election was a shakeup and we are still in the throes of it, or at least it's sort of after tremors. And, uh, you know, you throw in coronavirus, you throw in uh, uh, Donald Trump getting scared and, 
you know, and 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 trying to ruin the election process in itself mm. with uh, the various um, shenanigans like the Supreme Court justices and Louis DeJoy, it, it puts a lot of things up in the air in a way that um, that any prediction model is necessarily going to have to kind of, you know, accept as an unknown. Yeah, um, I think that's right. Uh, so uh, look at the polling in your state. Uh, make your strategic decision. Uh, I think we've got enough here. We're not even going to get into this story about the uh, caravan of uh, Trumpers who tried to drive the uh, Biden bus off the road in Texas, which is pretty fucking funny. I mean, I don't have anything to say about it other than it's fucking Is there terrible. anything that needs to be said? It's pretty fucking funny. Uh, so... It's pretty great. And uh, so, you know, I'm looking forward to a, a full day of that come uh, Tuesday. It's going to be really great. And, uh, you know, depending on the outcome <laughs> of the election, we'll have to decide, uh, you know, whether we are going to go full accelerationist in this country. Biden, Biden now, look, the move now for the Biden campaign is they need to buy a fucking monster truck. OK, they need to buy a monster truck and you got to uh, take these know, people slap on. his yeah. face on it. And yeah, and just, you know, next time that happens, you run those freaking because those guys, did you see their trucks? They weren't just pickup trucks. They were the big fuck you pickup mm. trucks with six wheels and, you know, uh, freaking um, uh, what do you call it? Like steam engine horns and stuff like that. And, you know, you just got to, you know, they're all about one upsmanship. So just beat them at their own game. And, you know, I, if he's not buying a monster truck on eBay right now, and using it to get to wherever he's going to be tomorrow. He is, you know, he needs a new person on his PR team and it should be me. I think that's well said. Um, all right. Um, that concludes our, uh, United States elections, freedom, Eagle and God, we trust extravagance. Jubilee. We've got this, uh, interview coming up. With Diego. There you go. Stay tuned for that. That was my, that was my bald Eagle. We're going to try to check in after the election from this uh, Mad Max post-electoral hellscape and um, just see where we're at at the time and, uh, and, and check in with our view of things. But uh, until then, uh, take care and um, uh, be safe. I think that's maybe an appropriate thing to say now. And um, yeah, fingers crossed. Okay, coming up, I've got an interview with Diego Hargi. Uh, he worked in the political department of Bernie 2020, helped craft the policy proposals that the campaign ran on. Um, had this interview recorded for a little while now. The audio quality is not great. Uh, Diego was also kind enough to do this from an airport, so uh, there's a lot of background noise. Um, but, uh, other than that, it's a pretty good interview. Um, Diego talks about the kind of radical presence within the Bernie campaign and the kind of socialist and working class orientation of people who work within. Uh, it's a really interesting interview. Excuse the sound quality. Uh, uh, enjoy. Yeah, Nevada was amazing. Um, seeing the results of that come in, that was just beautiful, beautiful time, better time than we're in. 
right now. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I think uh, the highlight of the campaign, and uh, I mean, maybe a highlight for a lot of our lives, honestly, it was um, such a great moment. Um, but okay, so just to, um, uh, to formally introduce you here, um, who are you and, um, and what, was, uh, what was your position in the campaign? How's it going? Uh, my name is Diego Haudegui. Uh I served on the Bernie Sanders uh, 2020 presidential campaign in 2019 and 2020 uh, as an uh, uh, intern on the political department. Um, and mostly working on gathering, uh, helping uh, associate researchers um, and political project managers gather uh, endorsements from uh, unions, uh, progressive officials, elected officials, uh, heads of progressive organizations, and uh, get stakeholders to sort of sign on, on onto our policy proposals. As you know, we were a very policy-oriented uh, campaign. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there were other candidates who uh, got a lot of uh, credit for their plans, uh, but Bernie, certainly no shortage of plans. I mean, no shortage of just fire policy proposals, which I think uh, is really, I mean, I appreciated them. You know, people are drawn to campaigns for all kinds of reasons, but, you know, if, if you're someone who, uh, you know, believes in progressivism, believes in socialism, there was certainly, I think, a lot uh, to appreciate and a lot that could move this country forward that he offered. There's obviously a lot of aspects to, to winning, to, to making uh, a society better. Um, and, uh, as far as working within the system goes, right, you know, we have to do a lot of things. Like We have to be able to circumvent media messaging, which is basically able to ignore the impact of... Uh, what our proposals uh, said, basically be, be able to give more credit to other candidates who are uh, putting out proposals that were not as impressive, not as uh, well-liked amongst the general public, but, you know, media perceptions, everything. So there's a lot of things we have to do, but as far as doing the right things and putting out uh, bold, credible proposals that had all the stakeholders uh, involved, um, that, that received input from all the different communities that, uh, that's been affected from uh, workers with the Workplace Democracy uh, Act and uh, uh, labor uh, unions uh, uh, to um, uh, people of color, minorities, Hispanics, um, African Americans. Uh, we were doing it all, um, and uh, we, we did a pretty good job overall as far as for the people who pay attention, which is mostly uh, the young people, the engaged young people. That's what we won young people overwhelmingly uh, across the country. It was really, unfortunately, uh, for the people who get their news primarily through TV, primarily uh, the Democratic primary voters who mostly don't know anything other than what CNN and MSNBC tell them, um, mm -hmm. we struggled a lot more. And that was pr particularly prevalent with uh, older voters. Um, and that was obviously uh, every campaign could have done something better, right? And uh, I think that Bernie probably could have been a little bit more aggressive. I think that it, it, for, for young people who, who care about actual issues and are, are mostly intelligent when it comes to uh, policy, policy 
they know instinctively they don't have to be trained socialists to, to know that material um it's material conditions are what matters mm -hmm. uh, not your it's not about sounding polite in public it's not about claiming you have uh, uh, anti-racist values for instance it's actually like for example um fighting systemic racism through the policies that you propose, mm -hmm. uh, fighting uh, systemic injustice, uh, labor injustice, uh, uh, wealth inequality that causes uh, instability and undermines democracy, all that sort of stuff. It's only actually going to be fixed if you fight for it and you pass it. Well, you fight for it, you propose bold plans that you can then use the bully pulpit to sort of pressure Congress into uh, passing. That That's the only chance we have, at least through working within the system. Whether the system and uh, the capitalist class allows that to happen is, is up to them, really. Um, but we're, we're proposing things to do things the peaceful way. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's uh, JFK who said, like, um, those who make uh, peaceful dissent or peaceful protests in, mm -hmm. uh, impossible uh, make uh, violent protests inevitable. And it's like, that that applies to systemic issues as well. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's it's attacking these issues from a material standpoint. You know, actually trying to make people's lives better. You know, in a real way. You know, neoliberalism has been very good at kind of um, undermining the role of the government as a way to actually do that. I mean, we have all kinds of symbolic concessions you know, uh, uh, different kinds of policy, but in terms of like materially making people's lives better, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, it becomes a racial issue as well. Uh, you know, we, it's, since the great recession, since 2008, there have been a lot of people who never just, just never fully recovered from that. You know, a lot of African-American people who never recovered economically, who lost their homes. A lot of Latinos in places like uh, Nevada, you know, lost their homes in the Great Recession and, and never got them back. The average net worth, uh, I don't know if it's for, for the average net worth for uh, African-Americans. I don't know if it's across the country or in specific states, but in, in many places, at least, is precisely zero. Their, their, debit, their debts... Um, uh, basically uh, uh, balance off whatever income and wealth they're bringing in uh, so they don't actually have anything. They have no, no uh, safety net to rely on. Um, I think 40% of the American public cannot handle a $500 emergency. They would go bankrupt, $500. Uh, uh, I think it's six, that goes up to more than 60% for a $1,000 emergency. And, you know, this area right here, I, I'm in uh, northern Virginia. Um, people sort of live in an island of some of the most wealth and prosperity uh, on the planet, um, really. Uh, it, it, the, and um, uh, there's so many families uh, living in their white picket fences um, in their single-family homes who have no idea that the vast majority of the United States looks and feels like... Uh, crap to live in um the vast majority of rural areas uh that uh it's it's not a pretty situation and a lot of people uh, a lot of the more wealthy upper uh middle class and above um uh, families who represent a fairly small minority of the actual uh population of the united states have no idea how bad it is and even though uh, a lot of them have their hearts in the right place and feel 
sympathy and, and, and feel like something has to be done. Um, they don't understand the urgency. Um, uh, they, they don't feel the pain themselves. And that's a hard thing to do. That's hard for anyone to do. So it's not as if you can blame them uh, entirely. But that explains why Northern Virginia, for example, uh, went so heavily for uh, Joe Biden. And, e and even the, uh, a lot of Elizabeth Warren, while she you know, did pretty badly across the country, um, she did not too bad um, in Northern Virginia. She, I think she picked up a couple of delegates here um, because there are a lot of people who understand the need for uh, progressive uh, policy, but uh, were able to sort of be brainwashed by the CNN, MSNBC arguments that like Bernie Sanders is not respectable enough and you have to work within the system, which is what Bernie was doing anyways, but you know. Right beyond Acres, they uh, call this place, I think, in Northern Virginia. It's, um, and you know, it is. <laughs> you have, uh, you know, so many people who are, you know, either working for the federal government or connected to it, you know, working for uh, the defense industry, um, working for the CIA. I want to go ahead and get to that, what we're saying about the media here, what we're saying about cable news. Um, because I think that's a really crucial piece of the puzzle uh, towards any kind of progress we want to make towards making things better in this country. You know, Bernie did have a uh, media reform proposal, which I think was uh, criminally overlooked. Media has become so consolidated in this country over the years, and large corporate media is really, um, has really dominated to the detriment of local media, independent media. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the, uh, the media reform policy uh, a little bit. I think the the push to sort of make sure that uh, uh, media um, newsrooms are, are unionized, um, the the uh, push to sort of uh, uh, break up uh, their size, to sort of uh, strengthen um, the local media of smaller newsrooms and stuff like that, all of that sort of ties into uh, democratizing. Uh, the media a little bit. Um, the, the biggest problem with the media is that it's almost entirely corporate and Americans think that they have a whole bunch of options to get their news from all these different places, but it's really just six companies that own the vast majority of what people uh, uh, participate, uh, uh, what sort of information they're getting online uh, unless they do a little bit more research, unless they're conscious of the fact that they're getting corporate news, then they go elsewhere, right? They go to progressive media, independent media organizations. But for the most part, um, we have a social media that uh, is pressured to say, okay, only the corporate media is credible. So we're only going to push the corporate media, even when people are trying for themselves to uh, uh, do their own research. That stuff gets buried. Independent YouTube channels get buried in favor of um, uh, much less popular um, uh, MSNBC stuff and all that. And it's, it's about sort of, it's not simply a money thing, right? It's not simply a market thing, um, an instantaneous market thing. It's also, if you control the narrative, um, then you also avoid uh, damage from the policies that would happen if a progressive came into office. And that was the case with MSNBC when they fired uh, Phil Donahue, um, uh, who was uh, one of their most uh, uh, popular um, uh, TV hosts. Uh, but he was one of the few people who was on TV who was willing to say, hey, the Iraq war is not a good idea. And of course, they were 
owned at the time, partially owned or uh, entirely owned by uh, General Electric. And they were very eager, of course, to bring us into war. And so they didn't want any anti-war voices on TV. And they pushed them out. There um you know, multiple people who have been fired from MSNBC over the years. I mean, I used to be, you know, an MSNBC junkie, kind of a standard liberal. And it's, um, but, you know, it's like Ed Schultz, you know. Ed Schultz, was, yeah. Uh, Rest in peace. Yeah, I think he was um, maybe critiquing uh, Obama to the... Um, uh, you know, just a little too much for, um, I mean, it is MSNBC. It's, it's basically a, a outgrowth of the Democratic Party at this point, in the same way that Fox News exists, you know, as a propaganda arm for the Republican Party. But, I mean, Ed Schultz, uh, Cenk Uger. It's a classic ratchet effect sort of thing. The, the Republican Party is a, a ratchet, a, a gear that turns everything right, turns American consciousness and public policy to the right. Whereas the Democratic Party acts as a ratchet to prevent any of that from going back to the left, right? And so it's like that the, even with the, the American population moving towards the left and overwhelmingly being what would one consider to be a standard progressive on pretty much every major issue, uh, the parties don't reflect that. The parties don't reflect the actual positions of ordinary, um, the vast majority, like I think the bottom 80% of the country, uh, how much they support particular policy has zero impact on its chances of passing. This was the uh, study that actually determined that uh, the United States is an oligarchy. It's not a democracy, yes. The United States is an oligarchy and not a democracy. But, and of course, the chances of a bill passing uh, are almost directly correlated to how favorable it is for the wealthy, um, for uh, uh, the elite. And so uh, that, that really shows that um, we, we have almost no impact, uh, working class people. We've, we've got uh, two parties now that, uh, you know, more than ever really serve that master. You know, we've got a increasingly far right Republican Party and a uh, neoliberal Democratic Party. So, and then we've got media outlets that, uh, you know, as things become more and more polarized in this country, we have media outlets that orient people around that kind of two-party duopoly tribalism instead of, you know, for example, like critiquing Obama on uh, something like TPP, thoroughly neoliberal uh, free trade policy that really handed over for power to global corporations. Uh, you know, that was, I remember that was one of the things uh, Ed Schultz really hit on. Um, and rightly so. I, I love how, like the the standard way for a the media, uh, how any Democrat shows that they're serious, shows that they're, they're credible, is by punching the left. There's so much. There are dozens and dozens of talking heads who are Republicans, but are anti-Trump. When they really speak for what, like point one zero five percent of right. the actual American right. population. Um, there is not a huge market of Republican but anti-Trump uh, media consumers. Um, however, Bernie Sanders uh, supporters, they could credibly say that there are at least 30% of the American public, um, at a minimum, uh, 30% of the American public were conscious Bernie supporters. But we have not, any, a, single, not a single talking head on any of the, uh, the major news channels are uh, known as a Bernie Sanders Democrat. And that's, that's because, because we don't um, represent the material 
needs uh, that the, the wealthy elite, uh, the liberal elite, the conservative elite want. Right. And this is, uh, I mean, this is the problem Corbyn faced in the UK and, uh, you know, really having to fight uh, for people who represented uh, his viewpoint, fight for their spaces in the media. And I, I think it also goes to show that it's not just strictly a matter of, of corporate media, because, of course, the BBC is publicly owned, but it's, you know, where is the power in the UK? Um, you know, it's it's exactly where the power is here. You know, it's in the uh, in the corporate world. It's in think tanks funded by the corporate world. It's uh, so it's it's really a um, the media landscape is something that shapes society, but it's also something that is shaped by society. And you know, where the money lies, where the power lies. But yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think if we can do one thing we, uh, useful, it would be to convince people that MSNBC is not your friend. Yeah. A lot of these prominent media outlets aren't your friend. New York Times, I mean, they've supported, I think, you know, essentially every uh, American intervention and war and coup there has been. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the New York Times was right out there, uh, you know, supporting the coup against Abel Morales. You know, feeding into the narrative that it was blatant. Yeah, that he was a dictator. That that there was fraud in the election. You know, come to find out later. Um, yeah, maybe not. Uh, you know, maybe the OAS uh, had an agenda there. You know, overall, no matter what, the material actions that we as uh, uh, progressives, as, as people who um, recognize there there are problems, systemic problems, uh, every action we take has to be about improving the, the working conditions of uh, working people, of uh, uh, anyone who's suffering, person stuff. And uh, we have to turn the topic towards sort of uh, the class issues, the, the issues that are affecting working class people um, because uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are going to constantly attempt to turn things into... Uh, uh, just cultural fights. So that allows them sort of divide the United States, divide the American population uh, against itself on issues that really don't have too much of a material impact on their own lives. So mm -hmm. now that's not to say we can become class reductionists because that basically ignores the enti an entire aspect of how uh, class conflict uses racism, uses sexism, homophobia, and all that sort of stuff to uh, uh, divide uh, working people. Um, uh, but that also means we can't um, uh, allow uh, the Democratic sort of uh, and Republican narrative of this is all about uh, liberal identity politics um, because that, that basically is not going to be something that Actually, it neither proposes any solutions that improve people's lives, and it uh, does nothing to actually rally anyone's support other than, this, again, the, the, the elite, the, the capitalist class. Um, they're, they're all all about uh, rainbow, uh, rainbow capitalism, rainbow flag capitalism. Intersectional imperialism. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's just something that can be um, employed so easily in such a cynical way. And it's, uh, you know, uh, which is uh, what exactly, exactly what Hillary did uh, four years ago, you know. It's, and it, it opens you up to attacks where, of course, uh, uh, Trump is sort of a, a hypocrite because 
he actually has not proposed any sort of plans that will improve the material uh, uh, conditions of, of minorities, of African Americans, etc. But he's able to he's able to truthfully say, "What did Obama do for uh, for for minorities? What do you have to lose?" He he's able to make those arguments. The right is able to make those false populist um, appeals because neoliberalism has not worked. Uh, a lot of the Hillary voters who the Obama voters who did not uh, vote for Hillary, they were basically excited. They were motivated to vote. By the fact that Obama was prom- prom- promising transformational change. They needed a massive transformation in their lives, and Obama didn't deliver it. Now, the vast majority of those people simply did not vote for Hillary Clinton, that, that, that subsect of people. Um, uh, and a lot of them were African Americans, for example, in, in the areas in Michigan and Wisconsin, in the areas where Hillary Clinton lost by just tiny percentages. You know, it's her fault uh, for not campaigning in this, those places, but also because it's also a little bit of Obama's fault that the neoliberalism that he uh, structured his entire, his entire administration around. Hillary Clinton uh, presented essentially a continuation of that. Hillary Clinton was seen to do the same thing, and people were just not going for it. And of course, a smaller subsection uh, turned around and voted for Trump uh, because he was saying, I'm going to change things. Of course, he didn't give many details, and in fact, he actually cemented a lot of the problems that already existed. But uh, people are very easily fooled, and it's easier to fool someone, obviously, than to tell them that they have been fooled. Exactly. It's, um, yes, I mean, unfortunately, it was, you know, this, you had this working class base, you know, the base of any left-wing progressive socialist movement, traditionally the base of the Democratic Party. Yeah, a lot of them didn't vote. And it's, you know, of course, there's all this attention on cable news and mainstream about these, you know, these middle class suburbanites who are always going to be a, uh, you know, unpredictable, kind of unreliable. You know, they voted for uh, for Trump in 2016. You know, they went for the Democrats in 2018. They're always going to be an unreliable voting block, which is why any progressive any left-wing movement really has to be built from a base of uh, working-class people. That's um, that's where numbers are. That's where the power is in society broadly. These are people that can strike, that can protest. And that's exactly how we build that base up, is by showing the Democrats, uh, the establishment is not going to come to people. When someone's being evicted, the Democratic establishment is not going to tell someone, hey, go to their house and help them. Help them actually protest against the landlord, make it an uncomfortable thing for these rich pricks to evict someone in the middle of a pandemic. Are there any other policies that you feel like were overlooked that the Bernie campaign came out with? Bernie Sanders proposed two sort of uh, pieces of legislation that would really uh, transform uh, the workplace. Um, And it it, it, um, involved uh, essentially giving workers uh, half, uh, uh, 49% of uh, the corporate, uh, uh, the seats on any corporate board, essentially. Um, and, and as well as a few other things, making sure that um, it's a lot easier to unionize a, uh, a workplace um, by making companies legally required to accept if, if the majority of workers um, vote to establish a union the company must accept uh, that union um, and, and, and bargain with them uh, collectively 
those two things um, really would have would make a huge difference in the way our economy is structured. Um, uh, make sure that the uh, would slow. Uh, substantially the rapidly increasing concentration of wealth, which of course translates to a concentration of political power uh, amongst those on the very top. Uh, all of those things are bad for uh, democracy. All of those things are bad for the conditions of working people, uh, of the American public at large. That'd be a big thing, and it's it's unfortunate that... Um, but we have... That's just another issue we have to work, work towards. We have to get people to uh, really fight for themselves and fight for their ability to have input in their workplace. People like their jobs better when they have a degree of input. How would you describe your uh, political alignment? Uh, progressive, socialist, posadist? Um, how would you describe <laughs> your politics? I, I'm one of those uh, non-sectarian leftists. Uh, we're not going to be replicating uh, one-to-one uh, uh, a, a revolution, you know, the, the 1917 revolution or the uh, Vietnamese civil war or anything like that. That's, that's not going to happen here in the United States, but something's going to happen, whether it be a political revolution like Bernie Sanders or something like that, uh, or whether it be a national revolution and, you know, capitalism and democracy collapses. That, that's, an, that's a very real response, uh, possibility, uh, especially with what Trump has been saying about not accepting the election. Yeah, um... So I just wanted to ask, uh, what uh, brought you to support Bernie? What brought you to leftist politics? Um, well, I think I'm a, a, a sort of standard. I think it's fairly common um, with because every a lot of so many people. Uh, not obviously. Um, I don't know anyone else uh, who went to my high school who worked for the Bernie campaign, for example. But so many people uh, in my situation were sort of just really uh, first getting uh, their, their memories as a child were of the recession, the Great Recession. And then Obama sort of came in and uh, everyone was excited for Obama. All the, all the kids were excited in high school, uh, freshman year, I remember, all that sort of stuff. Um, and sort of our realization over the four years, uh, a lot of us... Uh, the, those four years of uh, high school and then um, uh, like for me, I was able to vote my first, uh, cast my first presidential vote for Obama's re-election. But even by that time, I was already fairly dischanted with uh, his policies. I was disappointed that he didn't hold the banks accountable. During college, you know, I was not particularly, uh, I was no longer Obama supporter during Obama's second term. And uh, I remember uh, being very enthusiastic and excited about Warren um, uh, before the uh, 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 before oh, during the 2016 before the 2016 campaign. Um, there was some uh, possibility that Warren might run, and we're like, and I was informed of Warren's work on the uh, the Consumer Protection uh, Financial Protection Bureau, which is a pretty good organization all things together but all, only when the government is responsible and as we've seen it's so easy to corrupt uh, uh, the government so it's it's basically been hamstrung under Trump it's it's so easy to corrupt these uh, you know uh, uh, government departments I mean this was part of the downfall of, of the New Deal um, kind of approach was that you know you just stack these oversight bodies full of uh, you know people who are sympathetic to uh, corporate interests and uh, 
unfortunately, that is what has happened with, I mean, to the extent that it just hasn't been totally prevented from doing its job. The uh, uh, CFPB has just been stacked full of uh, people sympathetic to banking interests. But Yeah, so I was big, I was a uh, person, Warren decided not to run. Um, I was... Uh, when Bernie finally came into consciousness, I was no early adopter. Like I, well, actually, well, as soon as Bernie came into consciousness, I uh, was immediately a supporter of Bernie, but I didn't know who Bernie, I can't claim to know, have known who Bernie was until he actually ran um, for president. And I was, I was happy that he was able, he was going to, it clicked for me that in order to really change things, you have to be able to, uh, willing to criticize the uh, uh, capitalist system. And, um, and so that sort of, like, I knew, I knew from the beginning that Hillary Clinton was bad. Hillary Clinton would be terrible. And the Democrats didn't provide any real resistance to Trump. They, they love to uh, uh, make fun of his, how crude he was, how rude he was, um, and criticize all that. But they passed a uh, spending bill increase after spending bill increase on all the uh, programs uh, that did not help Americans. So they, they, on, on the they military? The size, yeah, on the military and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then didn't really provide any real resistance to his uh, tax cuts uh, for the wealthy and all that other stuff. Um, and, oh, yeah, ultimately... Uh, I sort of cemented my belief that, um, that Bernie Sanders was the right way to go. So uh, what, are you, what are you keeping busy with now in terms of uh, activism, in terms of uh, politics? And um, uh, are there any other efforts that you think uh, people should be aware of now and paying attention to? Well, um, I am helping with the, towards the social media and uh, communication strategy of uh, the Metro DSA. This is uh, DC Metro DSA. Yeah, DC Metro DSA. I'm helping with their communication strategy. And uh, uh, I'm running their Instagram page, which is sort of fairly new. And so we're uh, working to sort of build it up. Our, our, Twitter, our Twitter page is pretty big. Our Instagram page is small um, and has to... We have to... There's a lot of activism that happens in DC that's not organized on Twitter. It's organized uh, primarily and communicated primarily through Instagram. And so we're working on expanding that sort of platform. Um, and then I've also been on the steering committee for DC Our Revolution for a while. And I'm helping them with those efforts, uh, especially um, with our endorsements of progressive uh, city council. Great. Um, yeah, is, is there any other, is there anything else you think is particularly important right now in terms of activist work going on? Um, uh, ahead of this election and beyond. Find out what is happening in your area and, and participate. You know, do do what you can, uh, whether it be a mutual aid project, uh, street protests, um, helping uh, with the vet, helping uh, stop evictions and things like that, and marching against slumlords. Um, even if it's not being organized by a socialist, even if it's just organized by a generic someone who generically calls himself an activist and who's been working on a single issue but might not be uh, plugged into the wider political economy uh, side of things, uh, question of things. Um, organize them, uh, uh, do what you can to help uh, because it shows, it shows where we stand when uh, uh, socialists march and show solidarity with other people. And that's, that's what we have to do. It's, it's about solidarity. We, we are all 
humans. We are all uh, uh, entitled to being able to have roof over our head, have health care, have access to clean water and, and food and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we have to help each other. And we have to do something to stop the, uh, the political, the partisan um, uh, party divide and unite the vast majority of Americans who have a common interest. And that's what we have to do. I think that's, that's very well said. Uh, just one last question. How many kind of out socialists, Marxists were there on the policy and in the Bernie campaign? Uh, I probably uh, shouldn't, uh, I, I probably shouldn't give too many details. Um, I, I would just say that you, you would be surprised um, uh, most people, I, I can certainly say that most people got it. If, if that, um, if that, if that answers your question, most most people understood uh, what was going on. Uh, there, there were a few careerists, uh, you know, people who were mostly, and and that's not the, you know, some of these uh, career people did uh, the best job that they could uh, for what they were being paid for. There were two consultants who did a very good job, and of course had no problem afterwards turning around and trying to do something for the Biden campaign, even though the Biden campaign didn't really. Uh, except their health, um, but uh, the uh, as far as a lot of the young staffers, most people got it. Most people were aware. They understood. They understood what was going on. Yeah, totally. Diego Hargi, thanks so much for being on the show.